we're here talking about I Never Said That I Was Brave, which is not only another repeated song from their yep. earlier EP, but the title track from their earlier EP. So this mm-hmm. is, along with We Know Who Our Enemies Are, one of the earliest tracks that we have from them. And it's one that they decided was worth keeping around, updating, modifying, making at home on this album. So it stands in a pair with the last track we talked about. It starts differently than the EP version, at least in that it's in a different key, mm-hmm. which I find interesting for a couple different reasons. Um, the EP version actually follows those four descending notes of A, G, F natural, E, and it repeats that a couple of times. The LP version that we're mostly talking about here today does the same pattern, but it starts on an F. A third lower, so F, E flat, D flat, C. Hmm. So it's the same gesture, but they they moved it down. And because the the vocals are spoken, they're not sung, it doesn't actually make that much of a difference for Aaron's delivery. What what key? It's not like it's like a better range for his voice, because he's not, you know, he's not singing pitches to mm-hmm. this anyway. So it's a subtle thing that unless you intentionally like listen to them back to back, you don't notice that there's a key change. I think it's odd, though, that they chose to change the key because of what this gesture is. And I'm going to try to make this as fast as I can. But I think (laughs) this is super interesting the way this thing starts, because that pattern doesn't show up anywhere else in the album quite the way it does here. And it's a special kind of a pitch pattern that has pretty old roots. So I'm going to play it here in A, the way it normally appears. And normally that sort of a gesture shows up in guitar music and it and it goes back to this really uh, interesting uh, sort of artistically culturally fruitful period in southern Spain from the 700s to the 1400s uh, under Moorish rule so so this region of Spain was called al Andalus later uh, anglicized as and Andalusia or Andalusia in Spanish and so this pattern has been given the nickname of an Andalusian cadence. It's it's this interesting s- musical cycle that has this constant downward motion that, that makes you want to repeat the cycle again. So it has this cyclical nature. It has a descending shape, which are two features we've already been talking about in the music on this album, as both these right. sort of descending, lamenting figures as well as musical cycles. This thing shows up all over the place. So it has its roots in Arabic music. In the last track, I talked about this song from the surf rock repertoire by yeah. Dick Dale in a different makam, a different Arabic mode. This one here is in makam Kurd. It doesn't matter really, but for the nerds at home who care about world music, <laughs> there you go. It's a slightly different pattern. With the important feature being that half step at the bottom. There's no Western scale other than the Phrygian mode that no one cares about that actually (laughs) uh, lands in that half step at the bottom. But it's a very grounding kind of a feeling. And in this music, it makes it feel like it wants to loop over and over again.
something I've been trying to pay more attention to in the latter half of this record is things like where the various instruments are panned. Because mm-hmm. after talking about Jay Robbins in such detail, I, it's just really interesting to see how this thing is produced. And so those opening notes only appear in the right. Like there's hmm. no sound. The only sound in the left is a little bit of feedback that kind of sounds like the bass player didn't turn his guitar down. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, there's and a so definite it, like white noise hiss that starts this track that yeah. is different than anywhere else. So it, exactly. it feels intentional to leave it in. Exactly. Yeah. It is not a mistake. Yeah. It, right. Specifically because it is panned to the left. Like mm-hmm. that and, is And real real quick just for for people who aren't familiar with audio engineering, panning just means Thank you. you have uh you're hearing the instrument more in one ear, like one side of the speakers or headphones than in the other ear. And usually an engineer will pan the guitars into more into one ear than the other. You know, sometimes entirely into one, but usually it's just more toward one than the other because you're able to hear them better that way. Your yeah. your ears can distinguish the sounds and it won't sound muddy. If everything's panned to the center, then you don't hear as much separation between the instrument. And then sometimes panning is mm-hmm. done intentionally for effect or you'll have like cross panning and engineers... Can, or producers can decide to do interesting things with panning as well. It's it's hard to know, I think, in a case like this, what without talking thinking to about or right the band exactly. Members. Yeah, yeah. But it, I find it interesting because then it the nearest thing I've come to that is anytime I listen to Radiohead, for example. There's so much complexity in a Radiohead track that they have to use panning pretty aggressively, or else mm-hmm. it becomes muddied. So yeah. there's usually three main guitar tracks and then alternative things that are being done in the studio that might not be done live. So they just, they have to do it that way or else, as Joel said, it's going to be completely muddied. But I think it's really cool to notice that in something that essentially just sounds like a, you know, a basement punk song to start with that, this, this fuzz white noise thing going on. Mm -hmm. And then some kind of relatively quiet guitar going on in the right, yeah. Once that guitar, and you can tell it's the same player because of where it goes when it goes panned to the left when it comes in with a kind of lilting sound, which, Stephen, I'm sure you'll talk about yeah. uh, in a second here. And then that pans back to the right. So again, it's creating this almost, here I go again, talking about whirlwinds and whirling dervishes. Yeah. Like it almost starts that kind of merry-go-round feeling. happens and i never said that i was brave is not a loop it happens a few times it sort of like teases this and then there's that that sound you're talking about in both guitars and both sides and there's this kind of like eerie high-pitched squealy sound that goes up on one side and like this yeah pattern happens again he's, bum, bum, uh, bum, bum. he's strumming above the nut of his guitar yeah, yeah. That's how you make. I that was even sound. thinking about that. Yeah. Yep. That. I, yep. I, so the nut the, for, for those same. of you who aren't guitar <laughs> players, the nut is the part that where the neck meets the head of the guitar that holds the strings. Where the tuning. Knobs yeah, are. to take them to the yeah. tuning knobs, and when you strum 
over where the, the strings are pulled super tight f- from the neck to the tuning pegs, you can get that kind of, it's a very common post-hardcore, hardcore kind of thing. To, it makes to a sound that. something like. That's right. yeah. terrible. That sounds, that sounds, sounds like better a with a distorted guitar. Turning the page. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah. A distorted electric guitar. No, that's awful. This, <laughs> this is the wrong guitar for that gesture. But no, that's totally it, Joel. I hadn't even thought about that. But that is, that's yeah, that's how you make that sound. So this this kind of thing has a has a presence in in popular music. It shows up in different ways. It's most linked with flamenco for this old Spanish guitar mm-hmm. style that has its roots in this Arabic influence in Spain from the medieval period. It's kind of traveled down into popular culture in a few different ways. So if you go back a certain distance, you get in Baroque music, you get, I'm going to play one of my favorite examples of this pattern. This is from Monteverdi, who I've mentioned before in relation to his opera Orfeo. This is from his Eighth Book of Madrigals, which whenever we have a podcast about Monteverdi, Eighth Book of Madrigal season is going to be fire. <laughs> it's, really, it's a really good set. Um, but uh, here we go. This is the L- Lamento della Ninfa. Enjoy. time that that was a kind of popular music it had a repeated pattern it was catchy it and and it had this sort of like tear-jerking uh love story element to it this is in the early 1600s this is the nymph's lament she's she's lamenting because this man that she loves has gone away oh love she said gazing at the sky as she stood where is the fidelity that deceiver promised and then these men respond, poor her. And then she say, make my love come back as he used to be or kill me so that I will not suffer anymore. And then the men saying, poor her, she cannot bear all this coldness. And it goes on and on. There's a lot of sighing. There's a lot of wishing she was dead. That you sounded know? like a sigh in, in, in yeah. musical form. Yeah. Oh, it absolutely does. So this is um, an early sort of codifying of like a folk music tradition from southern Spain into the classical repertoire. But it shows up in other unexpected places. There's a, a famous Christmas carol that uses the same pattern. So here's hmm. here's an example of it. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Oh, angels greet with That was, of course, Kenny Rogers, because who can resist listening to Kenny Rogers accompanied by a harp? <laughs> Greensleeves, the tune to What Child Is This, is is yeah. a version of this pattern. And because we talked hmm. about surf rock and because we talked about these sort of drum fills, here's a really famous one from the 20th century. So 
So that's the ventures walk. Don't run. Mm. I could go on. There's a, there's literally, <laughs> if you want to go people, there's an entire Wikipedia page that is just a list of popular songs that use this chord progression. So <laughs> that's it's, awesome. a, it's a thing. Uh, and it calls up some interesting sort of mental spaces. Uh, a lot of it, I think though, ties into this medieval Spanish intermingling when you know this this era when christians and jews and muslims lived in relative peace and stability in this part of europe yeah yeah it was i I could say something about that i mean this is this is a period of time um that fundamentally changes the history of christianity you know i i mean i don't want to put everything on the shoulders of philosophy but uh the west would (laughs) not have known aristotle if it weren't for mm-hmm. this period of history and the Islamic commentary tradition on Aristotle's philosophy, the West really mm. didn't know much about Aristotelian philosophy. Most of the early medieval Christian philosophers and theologians were Neoplatonic. And then Aristotle's work began to find its way into the hands of Christians first. It was translated from Arabic into Hebrew because you have lots of Arabic-speaking Jews who were also theologians, philosophers who were translating it, and then from Hebrew into other European vernaculars. So someone like Thomas Aquinas, for instance, who is an Mm. Aristotelian theologian and philosopher, he would not have had Aristotle if it hadn't been for this confluence of Christian, Jewish, and Islamic cultures coming together during this this period of time yeah it was an immensely important era of cultural exchange so that's a lot loaded into a you know a guitar lick at the beginning of the song <laughs> the, op- the, uh, the opening gesture of this wow what but a it's song a, it's a, but it's a riff that has a, a huge history rolled out before it and i don't know whether that's really a conscious thing if Mike is sitting there thinking about the, the historical implications of what he's playing, but it's a great way to start a song. And, um, yeah. And I apologize to everybody. We can talk about the lyrics now. How does this song start? Does anyone want to read the first verse? You might sleep, but you'll never dream. Onward, progress, or so it seems. And you might laugh, but you'll never smile. Come on in and waste away a while. You might sleep, but you'll never dream. Progress, progress, come on. And you might laugh, but you'll never smile. Come on in and waste away a long while. Stop. Da. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so two two phrases essentially repeated. And we were saying, I mean, so to kind of tie this back into our discussion last episode, we ended by by looking at this kind of long poetic lament at the end of We Know Who Our Enemies Are. I feel the warmth of her whisper and the cold of my mistakes, her soul in the balance, my heart in her hands. I made her a widow. She made me a man. No, no, no. So we talked about this kind of, and this is something that's come up again and again as we've talked about this record, how the Mm -hmm. narrator will sort of have some kind of epiphany or realization and then pull away from it in one direction or another, right? 
And so he's pulling away. And then you have the, the track titled, I never said that I was brave. Right. And so I think that if we're going along with this theory, it definitely makes sense, right? That this is the narrator wrestling with this fear, right? Of coming to these realizations, but then shying away from them, running away from them, perhaps. And I mean, in, in light of that, I almost feel like the onward progress shouts are almost sarcastic in a way. Yeah, it's it's so tongue in cheek, right? Like you you can see the sneer on the narrator's face as Aaron's intoning these. Like it's incredible how he, it, the 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 diction of that is so cool. It's one of the coolest things on the album. Yes, yeah. and and so I guess the the first question here is who is you? Is it the narrator speaking yep. to himself, or is it him sort of? threatening if you will the counterpart right the other character in the album or is it a generic Mm. you what do we think it feels like the narrator is describing a consequence of something right like now that something has happened you might sleep but you'll never dream you might laugh but you'll never smile and that is a kind of Dante's Inferno sort of hell, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 like yeah. you're, you're certainly that's the kind of image uh, that that you would find somewhere in Dante. Sure. Uh, but it's an image you actually find quite precisely in Edgar Allan Poe. Mm-hmm. There's a moment in this super creepy story called The Fall of the House of Usher. Oh, yes, yeah. Where the basically the Fall of the House of Usher, the narrator goes to visit this old decrepit house with this decrepit friend of his who's who's sort of inside and is haunted by the house itself and by the sort of ending of generations of his family. It's just him and his sister that are still alive. And and he's just falling apart himself, even as the house is falling apart right. around him. And so there's this moment where this creaky friend named Usher picks up a guitar. And I'm going to read the description of, of what he does with the guitar. And then uh, it gets even better. Uh, I'm going to stop reading and let somebody else read for me. But here we go. This is the narrator speaking about his friend grabbing a guitar. He says, I have just spoken of that morbid condition of the auditory nerve, which rendered all music intolerable to the sufferer, with the exception of certain effects of stringed instruments. It was perhaps the narrow limits to which he thus confined himself upon the guitar, which gave birth in great measure to the fantastic character of his performances. But the fervid facility of his impromptus could not be so accounted for. They must have been and were in the notes, as well as in the words of his wild fantasias, for he not unfrequently accompanied himself with rhymed verbal improvisations, the result of that intense mental collectedness and concentration to which I have previously alluded as observable only in particular moments of the highest artificial excitement. The words of one of these rhapsodies I have easily remembered. So his friend picks up a guitar, starts to play, and starts to sing. Here's the important line in this. It was perhaps the narrow limits to which he thus confined himself upon the guitar, which gave birth in great measure to the fantastic character of his performances. In the 19th century, when Poe would have been writing this, there's no rock and roll. There's no association to the guitar as like a kind of a generic popular instrument. It's still mostly thought of as sort of a Spanish, because I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's a descendant from the oud, this Arabic instrument that ended up parking in Spain and going through a lot of evolutions. And mm-hmm. so to have a, a narrow limit to what was played in the guitar on, on this so-called Andalusian cadence. 
it all kind of like hangs out in this crowded space down to the bottom of the neck. And that's it's highly associated with flamenco music. And I, I feel like this is the kind of thing that Poe is trying to evoke is that type of sound that he, you know, and flamenco music has this really fast, rapid stuff that's going on in the fingers, even while the chord yeah. progression in his imagination has got to be something like that that's going on. So here we're in this creepy space and it's going to get creepier because instead of reading the lyrics to the song that this friend now sings, I'm going to let Christopher Lee read them to us. There's six stanzas to the song that the friend sings in the fall of the house of Usher. And then we're going to listen to Christopher Lee reading the lyrics to the last two stanzas. Enjoy. But evil things in robes of sorrow assailed the monarch's high estate. Ah, let us mourn, for never morrow shall dawn upon him desolate. And round about his home, the glory that blushed and bloomed is but a dim remembered story of the old time entombed. And travelers now within that valley, through the red litten windows, see vast forms that move fantastically to a discordant melody, while like a rapid, ghastly river, through the pale door, a hideous throng rush out forever and laugh, but smile no more. <laughs> oh boy. Okay, uh, Stephen, you're you're just adding so much fuel to my ridiculous fire that I'm gonna <laughs> unleash in a second here. Please do. <laughs> Can I just add something yeah, about please. the fall of the House yeah. of Usher? Yeah. So this story of Poe's is often referred to as an arabesque, which mm-hmm. is a pattern in, in Arabic geometric pattern, right, that's used in mosques. And it's called an arabesque because of how the narrative of the story is arranged in these sort of interlocking kind of recognizable, like you can sketch out the events of the story in this sort of pattern. There's also an interesting connection to the fall of the House of Usher in in the, the climax of the story. So in, in the climax, essentially, the narrator is visited by the return of of Madeline, Usher's sister, who... Oh, who they've just buried in the basement. Yes, they just buried her. <laughs> um, and it's an extremely creepy scene. It's sort of a pitch-perfect example of what Freud calls the uncanny, right? An experience of something that is familiar and yet somehow very wrong and off. Right. Yep. And and you don't really know. I mean, because you're the, the narration of the story is being told in first person. You don't really know if Madeline's return is some kind of hallucination, if she wasn't really dead and she unburied herself. Right. Or if it's a ghost or if he is actually yep. seeing a ghost. And you also don't know if the narrator is sane or insane. At the same time, like yeah. you, because right. he could be an unreliable narrator. That's, you know, something that 
uh, I believe Poe plays with a little bit. I can't think of any like specific examples necessarily, but yeah. So, and, and the connection I I think that's interesting to to the record, right, is that we we have in some ways a kind of similar dynamic, right, where we have a narrator who is telling us a kind of story, or at least we're we yeah. are privileged to see this kind of play out in his mind, if that's how we want to think about it, like if he's imagining these conversations or whatever. But it's also interesting that, you know, the second track on the record is The Ghost, right? Yeah. And and that comes essentially at the near the climax of of what we're saying is the end of the story. (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, that's something that I maybe want to return to when we get to the end of the record i I want to think about this a little bit more um i love this story of of pose it's it's a fantastic yeah uh story totally yeah great call out steven that's awesome and i just i remember the first time i read this years ago it's a creepy story all around but that was the line that got me while like a rapid ghastly river through the pale door a hideous throng rush out forever and laugh but smile no more (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't that, like I was just like if you just try to picture that for a second a hideous throng laughing without smiles on their faces forever yeah yeah what a what a horrible image to yeah. to evoke yeah I love it right it's so great it's a weird line in this me without you song for sure and you can just kind of let it go by you and you might laugh but you'll never smile I don't know. Like, I just, I always think about this story whenever I hit that line. To pick up the thread Joel was putting down about, it feels like a consequence of something. Mm -hmm. Like, I think if we're taking it in this direction, this Poe-inspired direction, then to me, it's the self. Like, I see this first chunk of words before the da-da-da. a section this seems to be the singer potentially addressing himself or just talking into nothing you know like it's kind of self-referential though and we see aaron play with this a lot i mean one of my favorite lines he ever wrote is uh who's ever heard of a singer criticized by his own song (laughs) like that's what's going on in a lot of these kind of self-referential moments he's just not the kind of self-awareness isn't quite there yet both as aaron as a songwriter and the character in the narrative anyway. So with all of that in mind now, apologies folks, this is another one of my misheard lyrics. Not recently. I've known, I've known my mistake for a long time, but it stuck with me because it helped get me to where we're the kind of space we've been in for a while. So in the repetition of progress, progress, come on. Yeah. The way he speaks, come on, mm-hmm. is very jumbled. It's very, could you say, the word that I misheard it as so many years ago was jabber. Mm-hmm. And he is almost jabbering that yeah. particular line. Yeah. And I, I think the jabber, to, to be clear, is to talk rapidly, indistinctly, or unintelligibly. And there are moments throughout this where he falls into kind of a fervor. Yeah. Where... What is he saying? Who knows? Upon first listen, you have no idea what he says. And in a way that's very different than music from this subgenre of, you know, post-hardcore or even hardcore, a lot of bands like that are just screaming. Yep. 
and in, in that sense, you truly can't understand them. No. In this sense, Aaron is kind of getting, uh, to use the terms of the youth, lost in the sauce, if yeah. you will. <laughs> and so I know that's not what he's actually saying, but because he is jabbering on and on mm-hmm. and this this throng laughing forevermore without yeah. smiling, like yeah. that word jabber just stuck with me for such yeah. a long time. It helps form a lens for me anyway. Sure. Well, and and this is a pattern that shows up sometimes, but not not all the time, which is that he repeats something mostly, yes. but not quite. We've seen this a couple other ways. But in this one, I hear like what you're talking about, that it both in his delivery and in the literal words, he seems like he's sort of falling apart in the second half. Yes. of Yes, that's exactly it. Specifically replacing the word onward with progress. So so when he starts onward progress, like some other places, it almost sounds like he has this kind of speech to himself that he's working through, even if it's mocking, yep. even if it's sarcastic or whatever. But the second time through, he doesn't even like get the word right. Just progress, progress. Come on, whatever. Like it feels like he's losing control. That's exactly it. That's why yeah. that word, again, even though it wasn't what he's actually sure. saying, feels relevant still because yeah. there's this unraveling of the spool yeah. uh, in, in his mind, in a sense. I like that a lot. There, I couldn't tell you the source right now, but I remember years ago, um, Andrew Bird, really fantastic musical artist, had this quote yep. about misheard lyrics because he has a sort of interesting mumbly delivery to a lot of his songs. And right, he yeah. said like one of his chief pleasures in life is mishearing song lyrics and like thinking they're singing something different that has like, it's sort of this unique personal meaning to him that could yep. have been intended, but it creates this whole other world he gets to live in when he's listening to those songs. Matt Beringer uh, from the national says the same thing. In fact, I, I want to say until trouble will find me, they didn't even publish their lyrics with the albums mm. because mm. we're, talking now in like a postmodern sense, like the message being conveyed by the singer is not just the words on the page that they're writing right. uh, at mm-hmm. the time of writing the song. It's the performance as a oh, whole. Yeah. And as such, the performance as a whole, like you and I, dear listener, we are just as much a part of that. We are creating the reality of the song when we do this kind of listening. Yeah. So it's, it's one of my favorite things to oh, yeah. read the lyrics as you're supposed to, and then compare it to, Oh my gosh, that's what they were saying. I, I, yeah, I absolutely yeah. love that. There's, there's another mishearing for me at the end of this. It's mm. in print. It says, come on in and waste away a long while. Yep. Until I read it, which was fairly recently getting ready for this show. I'd never heard the word long mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. I just heard him stumbling over trying to say the word while, and it just sounded like a stutter, just like, Coming in and waste away a while, like you can't get the word out. I was going to point that one out because, yep. to, to your point, it's like he quote unquote gets the words wrong if he's saying the same speech over and over again. Yep. So, waste away a long while, it, it intentionally creates that stumbling effect, even if it doesn't matter what word he right. fit in there. It's just more syllables yeah. than were in the previous phrase, which is so cool. But that's a moment of potential self-realization. Like, oh my gosh, this progress that I'm supposed to be undergoing yeah. is going to take so much longer. Like I keep, Joel, to your point, like I keep having the epiphanies and then I keep falling back into my same old patterns again.
and the line, come on in and waste away a while, it's an interesting invitation, right? It's an invitation. Yeah. Um, again, to whom? To himself, to yeah. uh, to this woman, to us, the audience. And I mean, it's it's not only an invitation, but it's a temptation, right? He's It's like he's being tempted yeah. by something because coming in and wasting away <laughs> is is the <laughs> antithesis of moving onward progress right it that's yeah, not yes. what those words imply and so yeah so there's the there's for sure this tension going on here between what he needs to do which is move on right and and just struggling to do that right and being tempted yeah right the clear on the surface context of that line, come on in and waste away a long while or come on in and waste away a while is, is definitely seems like some kind of a sexual temptation. But yeah, in the context of talking about mm. the fall of the House of Usher, it's a it's an evocative line to imagine that kind of just like decrepit atmosphere. Right. Come on in and yes. waste yes. away a yeah. while. Well, and it even conjures up Dante as mm-hmm. well. Like there's this kind of like you're just going to sit there and your soul is just going to be eaten away yeah. at for all eternity, yeah. potentially. Yeah. It also makes me think of the the knight guarding the uh, the Holy Grail at the end of Last Crusade. Indiana yeah. Jones. Yeah, yeah. Last Crusade. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's just literally just sitting there like wasting away. Literally. Yeah. yeah. Like for what end? Just in really straightforward, simple terms, this song seems like the sort of last gasp of of an attempt at the aesthetic life. Mm. If the aesthetic and the ethical are, are the options we have, this is the last song of the A section where we have this instrumental track A, and we have four songs that are sort of you know under that heading. This is the last of those songs, and to me, that feels like the fullest embrace of living for the experience of the moment and the pleasure of being with this person and all the rest. And and yet, the song judiciously avoids the pitch A the whole way through. So this is Man. this is where I think it's odd that they made this the switch. Hmm. So in in the EP version of it. For this one, for the for the album version on A to B Life, you get some B flats in there. For all the other ridiculous things I've said about the notes A and B, I just think it's worth noting at the last gasp and really the fullest embrace of this of this A life to me anyway. The pitch isn't there. He's still somehow trying to avoid it, or he, or he's already moving away from it, or something. That's that's right. What I would say. Right. Well, and so to kind of piggyback on that, even what he's doing in his lamenting compared to previous songs where he's kind of reverberating back away from the the realizations of the ethical, the, even that is is different somehow. Like coming in, waste a while. You might laugh, but you'll never smile. Like 
that all of that sort of stuff is just like it's almost like a lament that he's stuck in this in-between space and so i think the fact that they aren't ever quite getting to the note a yeah i mean if if we're gonna keep going with our harebrained theory here like that kind of plays into that like he's stuck he's truly stuck in between there's there's one other little musical detail worth noting about this stuckness and that is in the opening gesture, we have this F, uh, E flat, D flat, C. The first time we get that Andalusian cadence feel. Mm-hmm. The second time, they don't actually do it in a straightforward fashion. You get. Mm-hmm. You get a tritone above it. You get a C and an F sharp, which starts gentlemen, right? At the beginning of Be Still Child, it's it's those exact pitches. Is that tritone. And it's so subtle, it's so soft, but it's like this memory where the where the music yes. keeps pulling you down to that C natural, which is a part of an A minor chord. But it's not the root of it. And then you get with that little memory of this note that's pulled out of a B chord as well. So yeah. the A and the B are sort of co-present in a really subtle way at the beginning of this and it's almost like he's like mulling over this decision this sort of like he's teetering on the line between these things and that's the opening musical gesture with all its historical loaded stuff within the context of the album that sound to me is like he hasn't resolved the issue that starts gentleman and starts be still child and and then it's like he he just like wipes it away it's like whatever and then you get this heavy and then you like launch into the song and it just hangs out someplace else that's yeah super driving yeah, yeah. exactly but i you just recalling the the musical memory that's going on right there with yeah. that gesture to me that just resolves the problem it doesn't matter that a is not showing up because yeah. we're referring back to the play between a and b in yeah. in this kind of a heading section yeah. Yeah. this suite of songs under a if you will yeah so before we get into the B section of lyrics, do you all want to say anything about the interplay of Aaron with the music in the da? <laughs> da. Da. I mean, for one thing, it's just... It's one of the only times that is coming to the top of my mind anyway, where Aaron is as a vocalist interplaying that deliberately with the rest of the song, like him screaming da fits very perfectly with what's going on with the rest of the band Mm. versus it's more subtle in other times when like he changes the way he's intoning his singing when the song gets more intense. Sure. Like that sort of stuff is obvious, but this Mm -hmm. is like, a call and response almost, you know, I'm thinking of like yeah. a Led Zeppelin guitar solo where Robert Plant is like wailing along with Jimmy Page. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, where it feels like his, that. Yeah. His bit. voice becomes an instrument. It's, it's no longer, you know, trying to communicate lyrics anymore. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, for one thing, if we're talking about him sort of spinning out of control and not able to even like get the words right and fumbling over the words at the end, this is like the utter extreme of that where now there's just no words left anymore. And he's just yeah. making guttural sounds. Right. Uh, yeah. But in a very rhythmically controlled fashion. Well, and in that sense, it feels kind of like a 
almost like a temper tantrum. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, like, he is at the time in the beat of where the song, you know, the music playing in his head, if you will. Yeah. He's, he's jumping up and down at that point, and he's screaming, dying, he's slamming his feet down real hard. That's, yeah. that's how I see him yeah. doing this. It's, it, I mean, it's just a cool, intense moment. Joel, do you have any thoughts before we get to the... No, I totally agree. That's how I've always heard that as well, is just like a kind of cathartic uh, uh, belting out of emotion. You know, I think he's, yeah, it's a release of of frustration, you know, and I think that in, in the B part of this, he's really getting at his regrets, you know, I think getting more specific uh, in some ways about the things that brought this relationship to an end, like actually confronting that in some way. So I think that there there's yeah. some kind of switch. Uh, I think you you can read this interlude as as, you know, he's been fighting this. Right. And now something yeah. is giving way a little bit. Yeah. Right. Well, and again, it it I've loved the word liminal, and here we go sure. again. Kind of, there's kind of a, a a tonal shift between the A section and the B section lyrically. So he's kind of he's fighting, going it, falling into what, in my reading anyway, is much more obviously talking about her, talking about that past relationship. So I guess I'll start. This one's a long one. I'll read the whole thing just so it's out there. When dreams of rings of flowers fade and blur, giving way to that familiar ill, come over and part your soft white curtains where I'm waiting for you still. If you'd unlatch the window, and if you'd let me lay there on your floor, if you'd give me another chance, if you'd forgive the pain I caused before. No use in saying how I'm sorry, so I'm trying not to speak. I'll sing in silence, lay beside you, with my face there on your cheek. My stomach swears there's comfort there, in the warmth of the blankets of your bed. My stomach's always been a liar. I'll believe it's lies again. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's so. I mean, the the first thing that I think of is that he's replaying some kind of scene in his mind and wanting to wanting yeah. to do it differently than how it happened before. Right? Where it. It always conjures to me like Peter Pan coming into Wendy's <laughs> bedroom. Yeah. I mean, like if you'd unlock, you know, there's almost like a, a fairy tale, like there's a sweetness to this, but also a, a moment of, man, I really messed up here. <laughs> like the pain that I caused before. Right. I mean, I think that, you know, we talked before about there being some something alluded to in many of these songs of a kind of sexual, obviously sexual attraction, yeah. um, some some sort of boundary perhaps being crossed. I mean, this makes yeah. me think of high school girlfriends. 
exactly to their window. I don't know if uh, anybody did that. I did, you know, that's kind of a high school (laughs) immature thing to do. But to me, that's what this is about, right? He would go over there and she would let him in the window. And what he's describing here is not what they would do. Right. Where he says, I'll just lay there on the floor. Give me another chance and I will sing in silence. I just want to feel my face on your cheek. That's it. That's all that's going to happen. Right. And that there's comfort here in the warmth of the blankets. Right. But and, you know, maybe it's it's possible to read this, I think, as. Not that he did something to cross one of her boundaries, but he crossed his own boundary, right? In, in That's more how I read right. it. Right, yeah. Not yeah. that he did something that she didn't want, but that he did something that he, again, we're talking about evangelical culture here, purity culture, yeah. that kind of thing, right? Promise rings and commitments of chastity, whatever, bracelets. And I mean, I definitely can speak to the kind of, guilt right that that teenagers are made to feel in these kinds of environments over doing things that you know are normal and usually really not that egregious either like not egregious period at all right right um right and and so yeah so it's it's like this thing about his stomach being a liar and his stomach swears that there is comfort right in this bed it's like the the lying part, I think it has to do with this boundary, right? That that it's not comfortable or something, or he wants to make it comfortable. And that, you know, maybe yes. this is the thing that broke up the relationship because he couldn't handle his own guilt or something like that. So it conjures up the question, like, who's he saying I'm sorry to? The the obvious answer is her and the hurt that he caused her, probably because he wasn't willing to go, like, he he dipped his toe over his boundary and wasn't willing to go further. That, you know, that's one reading. Or he put guilt on her, right? Exactly. Um, And maybe tried to blame her in some way for... Yeah, you did this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... and I definitely, I definitely read that because at least in my experience with with evangelical purity culture, the blame is often squarely put um, on the you know the Jezebel. Yes, to- totally. Yeah, no, so, and I, I mean I yeah. so I was a youth pastor uh, ten years ago, two thousand nine to two thousand twelve, when I was in seminary, and this was a huge struggle. Like in the summer, right? I'd have parents who are like, you know, why don't you have a bathing suit policy? I'm like, you mean like a requirement to wear bathing suits? Like, don't we need a policy for that? Like, what are you talking about? Like, I <laughs> I didn't get it, um, even though I grew up in this <laughs> culture. And they're like, no, a policy that says that the girls have to wear a one piece bathing suit. And I was like, uh, I don't, you know, it, and it was it was a, a big thing, you yeah. know, and my intern and I, who was also a, a seminary student, a woman, you know, we really like went back and forth, forth on that because we we're like, that's 
it's not that's sending the wrong message, right? Um, and I, I mean, that kind of thing still happens. That has not gone away. That that is definitely still no. a thing where it's like the boys bear no responsibility. stomach you know here is is euphemistic at the, at the yes. end of this for sure i mean that makes sense to me it's just like it's it's one of a variety of images you could use for like the sort of physical longing for any almost hedonistic yeah, yeah yeah which is again where i where i feel like this is this last gasp of, a, of an attempt of just embracing just i just i want what i want and i'm going to live that way yeah despite all of the sort of guilt baked into all these lyrics as well i, I to me just reading this, I don't get the sense internally in the lyrics that there's any kind of actual critique of purity culture or anything that goes with it. Do you, do you? I mean, we can talk about it as an external cultural force, but within the lyrics, he seems to be inside of it. not comfortably so. He's very uncomfortable, but like consistently so. Does that is that fair? Yeah, I, I like your use of consistent. It's not an affirmation of that culture. It's just that that's the culture he lives within. And he, he isn't renouncing that. Uh, So within that culture, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, every, every change in, in values, which in a sort of a a post virtuous society is all we're left with. If you want to believe Alistair McIntyre, um, (laughs) uh, or, or, or Max Weber for that matter. Fair. With, with any set of values, there's a certain something that you gain, but there's something else that you lose. And so for a moment, I just want to like, let us sit inside of, of, of purity culture, if we want to call it that. And, and let the first line of the second section of the song be as tragic as it is. <laughs> when dreams of rings of flowers fade and blur, giving way to that familiar ill. These are not Aaron's dreams. These are not the narrator's dreams. This is a very feminine image. When dreams of rings of flowers fade. A ring of flowers, right? This is like something like little girls will string together, you know, whatever kind of flowers you can find laying around. Yeah, it makes me think of a maypole. Yeah, yeah, this is, a, it's, you know, I don't know if this is archetypal or not, but this is an old kind of an image that you can picture, mm-hmm. you know, you know, like we've talked about, you know, Orpheus and Eurydice, like this is, you could imagine this like on the bride's head as she's dancing around this pole. There's, there's something very sort of ceremonial and also very innocent and earthy about this whole image that the dream of that possibility of this kind of like joyous, innocent marriage is, is what I see here. When that fades, giving way to that familiar ill, like that's a very harsh and fast drop. Oh, it it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it, it, like it's it's a truly heartbreaking line. I don't even that just feels sad to me. Even though I've always had a problem with purity culture, sure. having not grown up with it, yeah. I've always kind of had that 
Like, what the hell are we doing here? Yeah. But that is still sad because I actually read it as it could be his because that's that's the light at the end of the tunnel of the kind of missionary dating mm-hmm. culture, right? Like, I have guided her from her hedonistic ways to a more pure and virtuous way of being. And this yeah. is the reward we get is rings of flowers. Yeah. <sighs> so everything else that follows in this verse to me is, is set in contrast to that opening image. Yes. Because we're falling back into this thing, which Joel, I like your reading that it's a, a half memory of a, a past event this isn't what happened. This is what he wished he could go back and do instead, both crossing his boundary and and hurting her by putting the, the blame on her. So there's almost this oscillation between, you know, where he's placing blame, which is kind of cool. I mean, that like there, there's almost a, a real humility to it there. But again, he's he, the, the stomach image really evokes to me that that hedonistic like I have no control over my bodies wish to do this thing whatever this thing is in in the context of this it's lying it's feeling flesh on flesh in a somewhat innocent framing but we know what it potentially implying you know and then it kind of culminates with that in the warmth of the blankets of your bed i mean warmth blankets bed like those are things that you living an ethical life shouldn't be doing in, in in the context of purity culture but we also have this uh, this repeated facial imagery right in the middle of the face laying on a cheek. And we've had all these like interesting verbal close ups to people's faces the whole way through this album and necks and, and yeah, cheeks especially really play around. But I just th- it's one of my favorite lines on the album. My stomach's always been a liar. I'll believe it's lies again, especially yep. when we hear it again. Teaser. Mm hmm. We don't have to talk about that during this conversation. No, we'll uh, get there. But I think the last line for me cinches what I've said a few times now. This is the last gasp of an attempt at at trying to embrace an aesthetic approach to life and to this relationship. I'll believe it's lies again. Even though he's saying that his his gut instinct and what his body wants is a lie. Well, okay, for now I'm going to believe it. Well, and that that tells me then that the no use in saying how I'm sorry, that's directed more at her than himself or God or anyone else, Mm -hmm. because he's wishing like there's a there's a dual lament here. There's a lament that he's being stuck in the aesthetic. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what we're seeing there with believing it's lies again. But he's lamenting that he can't even go like, okay, I think I could do this aesthetic thing, but. I can't go back to you because I've burned that bridge. What a horrible spot. Something's occurring to me now just to, just to bring this back around to the music one more time. And I haven't been playing all the riffs on this thing, but the whole thing hangs out in a similar sort of pitch space. I already mentioned that it, it avoids the note a, I'm just thinking it actually avoids the note B too. There's no A or B in this song mm-hmm. anywhere. It just stays away from both of those notes the whole time. And if we're thinking of this as being this last like tr- like attempt at the possibility of of not succumbing to to the ethical call that we hear yeah. from the beginning of Gentlemen, um, is the whole song uh, of of I never said that I was brave. Most repeated note over and over and over again is an F natural 
which is the polar opposite. It's the tritone away from B, which is what we keep talking about representing the ethical. So in some ways, the, the musical center of this entire song is, is the polar opposite of the ethical. You never hear those notes <laughs> clash against each other. You get this faint echo of a tritone at the beginning. Right. But that's but it's a setup oh. for where where the story is going to finish. And when we move into B as an instrumental track, it sounds jarring in a way that the motion into A, the, fir the first time we hear this instrumental transition, is not jarring. But it, it definitely is at this point in the album. If he wanted to end the story with I'll Believe It's Lies Again and just let the, the music play out, he can't do it. This B track comes in and interrupts that pattern. It's like, no, you can't just stay here and keep looping and like, this is now where you're gonna land. Like, there's something else that needs to happen. This is a stupid thought in relation to all this, but there's never gonna be another moment to share it. Because we've talked about the, the fall of the House of Usher, I, yeah. I, within the like official sort of song discussion, I, I restrained myself. But immediately after <laughs> this is haunting line about laughing and smiling no more, it talks about the conversation they had as soon as as his friend sang this haunting song. Uh, and I'll just read this one sentence and never mind the whole context. This opinion in its general form was that of the sentience of all vegetable things. Oh boy. <laughs> and, uh, oh boy. And we'll get there maybe three albums from now. <laughs> <laughs>